0: Today's Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16 to 33. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For if you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received um, the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship for many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me, of my anxiety, for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fail? And I am not indigent. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Adores, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall to escape his hands.
1: Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today. We're coming towards the end of our series in 2 Corinthians So of the 13 chapters. Today we're in the second half of chapter 11, so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 16 to 33 is where we'll be today. Uh, the other day, I was walking past a high school, and um, as you know, schools are empty at the moment. Everything's been locked down. I was about to go back finally, uh, but I was walking past this school, and I noticed that they had done what lots of uh, schools have done now, which I think is really cool. Which is they kind of plaster their buildings with their core values and um the the sign that was on the main doors to the foyer of the office was the core value of humility, which I thought was great. like that's a great core value to have and something we want our um, our kids to learn. Um, but I thought it was really ironic because as you look past the the word humility, it sort of gave way to the, this scene where the... Uh, trophy cabinet was displaying all of the school's trophies and accolades and I think there was a, uh, a poster next to it saying you know another great year for such and such school and I just thought isn't that a great kind of ironic picture of our attitude towards humility and self-promotion like we know particularly as followers of jesus called to emulate his example like in in philippians chapter 2 emulate his example of humility we know that that's a, a core value that's good to have but we also know that in this day and age we need to promote ourselves right we need to brag we need to boast to get people's attention and so this tension exists between valuing humility but then feeling the need to promote ourselves if you've ever written a resume or a, a promo for yourself at some kind of event you'll know you need to hammer it up you need to you need to project your best self so that people will value you or take you seriously or whatever now this tension uh, is very much at the forefront of this chapter in chapter 11 because Paul hates boasting. He hates seeing the boasting of his opponents, the super apostles in Corinth, and he hates seeing how receptive the Corinthians are to that boasting. He hates to see how effective it is, as it is in our own experience, to boast about yourself. It's effective, it works. It gathers you followers and influence, and that's exactly what's happening in Corinth as these super apostles boast about their spiritual prowess, their spiritual accomplishments. And Paul knows that if he's going to get these these Corinthian Christians back to the gospel, he's going to have to participate in this boasting himself. He's going to have to fight fire with fire. And so we saw this last week in the first verse of chapter 11, he um, introduces this, this um, section where he's going to boast and he calls it out for what it is ahead of time. He says it's foolishness. Boasting is foolishness. It's like talk, talking like a madman. But this is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. And then he goes on in our passage, takes up that line of reasoning and he says, I repeat Let no one consider me a fool, but if you do, at least accept me as a fool, so that I can boast, so that I can also boast a little. What I am saying in this matter of boasting, I don't speak as the Lord would, but as it were foolishly. Since many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with someone if someone in, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone is arrogant toward you, if someone slaps you in the face. I say this to our shame, we've been too weak for that. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly. I also dare so he says since you're so receptive to boasting since these super apostles have had such success in drawing you in through their boasting then fine I'll do it and the first boast he makes is one that's very much in keeping with the boasts of the super apostles fighting fire with fire, using their methodology against them. The first boast he makes is is very similar to a boast that they were making themselves. And so he says in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. He knows that in the first century church in particular, the, the, the status that one had as an Israelite, as someone who could speak Hebrew, right? As, as having the sort of fleshly lineage of the people of Israel carried a lot of weight. We talk a lot today about white privilege. Well, in this case, there was Hebrew privilege. And Paul is leveraging that now saying, yeah, you know, they're telling you they're Hebrews, Israelites, children of Abraham. Well, so am I. And in fact, when he writes to the Philippians, he does the same thing and and even turns it up a few notches. He says in Philippians 3 if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church regarding the righteousness that is in the law blameless and so he boasts in something that would make sense to these people that you ought to boast in particularly for these gentile converts in corinth they were very sort of um they were very influenced by this boast by this being able to say i am not just A convert to Christianity. I am of the people of Israel. The church knew across the board that the people of Israel were privileged. God had chosen them out of all the nations to bless the nations. And yes, it's true that the New Testament tells us that in Jesus, those of us who are not Jews have been engrafted into that vine, which is the the people of Israel, we've been adopted into the family and so receive all of the privileges that the people of Israel receive, It still carried weight in the day to be of the flesh, to be a child of Abraham, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that boast makes total sense. It's very similar to the boasts of the super apostles themselves. But what he's about to do now with the rest of his boasting is do a total switch up. He's going to turn the whole thing upside down. And you've got to think as you're reading this in Corinth, maybe even with the super apostles in attendance, you're reading this, you read that first boast, you say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. He makes a good point, actually. The next part, I just imagine the sound effect of like screeching brakes Because he's about to completely turn it all upside down. He makes his next boast in verse 23 and following. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one, with far more labours, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. And then he goes on to give a catalogue of his sufferings. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. Often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. This just catalogue of sufferings. And the reason it would make no sense to boast in your sufferings to the people in Corinth, and particularly to these super apostles who he's targeting here. The reason it makes no sense is because their gospel, the gospel of the super apostles, was a triumphalist gospel. It was a gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. They were preaching the message that spiritual maturity is evidenced by the avoidance of suffering and we're going to get into this later but there was these two ideas about the resurrection that, that they were spreading. One was that there is no resurrection so all you've got is this life. So as Paul says, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live your best life now. Indulge in as much pleasure as you can before you're put in the grave. And the other idea was that the resurrection has already happened. So there is a resurrection but it's already happened. We already live in resurrection bodies in a resurrected existence. There's no more pain, suffering, death, right? And so again, live your best life now. If you're suffering, it's evidence that you haven't been raised from the dead, which means you're not a Christian, which means you're certainly not an apostle. And so Paul completely switches this upside down. He boasts in his sufferings. And the reason that he does is because he understands that the the shape of the Christian life is to be molded by the reality of the cross and the resurrection. That for every Christian, the testimony of their existence ought to be a testimony of the cross and of the resurrection And so in his sufferings, he is merely living out a life shaped by both death and resurrection. This is why he says we die every day. We're like lambs to the slaughter. And that doesn't disqualify us or undermine our authority as apostles. It actually authenticates it. Only a life lived in light of eternity can persevere in the midst of persecution. Now, to illustrate this, I want to go from the Apostle Paul to another missionary. And this is one who has lived much more recently, a guy named John G. Patton. Uh, His autobiography, Missionary to the New Hebrides, is one of the best autobiographies you'll read Uh, It reads like a thriller because all throughout his missionary journeys, he was constantly under threat, constantly under threat from hurricanes and shipwreck, as well as from disease and death, as well as from the enemies, which were the native peoples of the islands that he was ministering in. And it just reads like a thriller. Now, to give you a little bit of context, his missionary journey began in Scotland where he was born and moved to the what was called then the New Hebrides, this chain of islands between us and Hawaii, what we call Vanuatu and that area in, in the South Pacific was where he went on his missionary journey with his new wife, young wife, Mary. Um, now, to the best of our knowledge... Um, the new hebrides vanuatu had no christian influence before a couple of guys named john williams and james harris from the london missionary society landed there in 1839 so they were completely unreached people however after sort of i don't know months of sailing from london to vanuatu these two guys harris and williams step off the boat embark on their mission to convert the people of the islands, and within minutes they were clubbed to death and eaten by the cannibal natives who lived on those islands. And this just obviously sent shockwaves through the Christian world. The missionary movement at its height was uh, was just shocked to hear about what happened to these two guys within minutes of landing on these islands. Now, it's only 19 years later, with all of this fresh in the memory, the, the, the mental image of these guys being eaten by cannibals, 19 years later that John Patton and his wife Mary arrive on the island of Tanna, 1858. Mary's pregnant and the baby is born in February of 1859. And John Patton writes of this beautiful experience of welcoming their first child, you know, on the island. He says, our island exile thrilled with joy. But the greatest of sorrows was treading hard upon the hills of great joy. Like so many European travelers at this time, they were very susceptible to disease and Mary had repeated attacks of ague and fever and pneumonia and diarrhea with delirium over the span of two weeks. And then Patton writes, then in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, she died on March 3rd. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me. As for all others, it would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. And he goes on, But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. Now, at this point, if you're like me, you just want to say to John Patton, go home. You've tried your best. Even just getting to this island by boat was a a triumph. But your new wife, your baby boy, You've just buried them with your own hands. Go home. You've earned a break. At least take a furlough, right? Spend some time in the south of France. Take some rest. But he doesn't. This book is such a testimony to the indomitable perseverance of this man. So now 15 years later... With a new wife and another child on a different island, he records this. During the hurricanes, <laughs> from January to April, 1873, when the day spring, the mission ship was wrecked. Sounds like Paul's experience. When the mission ship was wrecked, we lost a darling child by death. My dear wife had a, protected, a protracted illness And I was brought very low with severe rheumatic fever and was reported as dying. Now, it wasn't just weather. It wasn't just disease, right? His enemies on these islands were just constant in their designs on his life. So he says, My enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished." Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. How do you persevere going about your daily work of mission and ministry with constant threats being made on your life? Like, to be honest with you, I'm in a season now where I'm feeling a little bit stressed a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit burnt out. I'm not having someone follow me around the office here at church with a loaded gun pointed at me. If that was the case, I would be long gone from here. right? You'd be looking for someone else to do this job. And yet he perseveres all through it. His faith is strengthened by it. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in His hands. I handed it over to Him. I didn't snatch my life back from my own, from my own self determination, but I gave it to Him and felt immortal till my work was done. He speaks of having this great confidence that not a gun would be shot, not an arrow loosed, not a stone thrown at him, apart from the permission of the Lord Jesus who rules all things, even over the wild peoples of the South Seas. He has absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. But when you look at the the rock bed, the foundation, the roots of his endurance, right? The roots of his confidence to keep going in the midst of suffering. When you look at the thing that motivates and energizes and sustains him throughout all of this, it's the very same thing that sustains Paul through all of the sufferings he's mentioned in this chapter. And indeed, it's the same thing that sustained Jesus' through his ministry to the point of death, even death on the cross. That thing that's sustaining all of these men is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. That's the key. That's the key. In fact, it's one of the funny parts of the book Um Right back at the beginning, when he's made the decision to go with Mary to the New Hebrides, uh, he faced a lot of opposition from people who were very anxious about him going, and with good reason, right? They're probably well-meaning people, you know, not 20 years ago, two dudes got killed and eaten on these islands, and so he was told, don't go. He records one exchange, uh, he said, uh, a Mr. Dixon exploded, the cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals. Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. <laughs> I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. It was the sure and certain hope of the resurrection that sustained him through so many sufferings. It was the same for the Apostle Paul. It was the same for the Lord Jesus. Remember in Hebrews, in chapter 12, uh, in verse 2, the writer to the Hebrews says, "Let's, Brothers, sisters, let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. What was it that got Jesus through the pain, the suffering, the ignominy, the, 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 the shame of the cross? It was the joy that lay before him on the other side. It was the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Now, this is why the Corinthians have a huge problem. let bring it back to the context of our passage. They have a huge problem. Because the word has been spread that either there is no resurrection or it's already happened. And so they're in danger of not living in light of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And so Paul says to them, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? He goes on verse 16, Now if Christ is, uh, sorry, uh, for if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Right? Those who have died in Christ are dead. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. I want you to think about that last verse. If there's no resurrection from the dead, right? If, if we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, if this is all there is, 80, 90, 100 years, if this is all there is, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, I think if you're honest, you read that verse and it doesn't really make sense. You're, you might say, why? If I've put my hope... In Christ only for this life, why should I be pitied? My life is still good. Like, life and eternal life, even if I have one without the other, I'm still doing pretty well. Yeah, like, eternal life, big bonus for sure, but this life is good. The reason that Paul says what he says about his life making no sense apart from the resurrection is because he was living a life that made no sense apart from the resurrection. Paul, Jesus, John and Mary, Patton, their lives are insane if there's no resurrection from the dead. They're spending the little life that they have for nothing. There is no eternal reward. There is no restoration of all things. There is no ultimate justice to be done. They've wasted it. And so the challenge for us today is is to, to ask ourselves, are we living a life that makes no sense apart from the resurrection? Like when you think about all of the most important things to you, your kind of hierarchy of priorities, when you think about... Your family, your marriage, your children, your work, your study, your money. Are these things being used in your life? Are they being arranged in your life in such a way that makes no sense apart from the resurrection? That's the challenge for us to come to terms with this morning. I think if we understand our lives... From the perspective of the scriptures, then it makes total sense for us to live this short life in light of eternity. And it makes no sense for us to focus and obsess right, on our, the, the life that we live now, which is a heartbeat in contrast with eternity. I want to show you this by way of a little illustration because I know a lot of it's very abstract and theoretical and it's hard for us to get our minds around. But I want you to imagine this rope and this little white part of this rope, this little taped up section as representative of your life on earth. This 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years represented by this tape. And I want you to see the foolishness of spending all of your time in this life focused on that section when what we have before us is year after year after year after age after age after eon after eon of (laughs) eternal life ahead of us eternal restored consummated life which is to come and even then the illustration which I think is pretty cool still breaks down because I get to the end of the rope and yet the Bible tells us this life which is to come is eternal it's never ending it is the world without end and so what foolishness for us to look Past the eternal eons of resurrected life which are to come, and focus all of our energies, all of our hopes, dreams, money, relationships on this. That is insane and so if we reconstruct our lives around the reality of the resurrection the sure and certain hope of the resurrection as Jesus did as Paul did as John and, and Mary did if we do that then we can say if there's no resurrection this is insane and then when we can then we can say my hope my confidence is not in the stuff I have accumulated for myself here. My boast is not in the flesh, but my hope is in the sure and certain reality of the life which is to come. What I want us to do now, as we come to the end of our time, is spend some time in your breakout groups or in your Your family or your small groups, spend some time pondering that question, am I living a life like Jesus, Paul, John and Mary, Patton, that makes no sense apart from the resurrection? To put it positively, have I arranged my life in light of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection? Am I living each day not focused in, right zoomed in on the minutiae of this day and age, but rather living with the view ahead of me of eternal, resurrected, new heavens and new earth life with Jesus? What would it take What kind of reconstruction and reconfiguration would need to take place for us to be able to live in light of eternity? I want to leave us with a word of blessing and benediction. As we cast our minds to eternity, I want to read for you what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says... Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, He will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with you all. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.